On this week's Bet the Process podcast, we have an actual smart person who knows math and golf, unlike Rufus. Uh, and we talk with Scott Fawcett, the inventor of the Decade app and the Decade system. And we learn a lot about how I'm going to improve my golf game. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. Welcome to a very special episode of the Bet the Process podcast, where Rufus and I have an actual smart person on with us who actually knows something about golf. And this is sort of a very uh, self-serving podcast because Rufus and I both want to get better at golf. And so we have Scott Fawcett on, who is the inventor of the Decade Golf System, um, which we'll obviously let him tell us a little bit about so that so that we don't butcher it. Uh, but I think Rufus and I are fascinated about this idea of sort of the intersection of analytics and training and sort of like course management within the world of golf. So Scott, welcome. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and sort of like what decade is? Uh, thanks. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, actually. First of all, um, decade is just a math based course management system. And I hate saying math based because that intimidates some people. But the, the most Not advanced us. math, we, we love maths. We love well, the, the, we'll probably get in way over my head on a uh, on a gambling podcast here. It, it, well, it is funny, though, actually, because the genesis of where it all began was two plus two. I don't know if you guys play any poker or anything like that, but two plus two is an online poker forum. And I used to post, you know, literally 12 years ago in the golf form, a sub form of it. Um, but we'll get to that in a second. My background is basically I, you know, I, I grew up playing competitive junior golf. I didn't really get started until pretty late. So I didn't really have much, uh, much recruitment out of college. So I went to a smaller school, Sam Houston State here in Texas first and then transferred over to Texas A&M after my freshman year. And did, uh, you know, did five years in college and got uh, graduated with math uh, finance and economics and statistics degrees um, because of transferring. I wound up having to go to a junior college here in Dallas in the interim while my coach wouldn't release me from my scholarship. So I wound up accumulating a bunch of hours. And so it'd been impossible to not get degrees. People always think that like, when you hear people with like multiple degrees, like, wow, you really tried. I'm like, no, I just wanted to play all, all my years of eligibility. So it was, uh, it wasn't that difficult to do. Played professional golf, you know, fairly well, never got anywhere, you know, that you actually want to get to. And then when I quit playing in 2002, I started an electricity company. And that's really when I started playing a lot of poker. Did a light bulb go off for you? <laughs> a light bulb went <laughs> off. That is exactly Literally. it. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, a light bulb did go off, though. I was driving home from Florida, totally dejected. And I'm like, what in the hell am I going to do for the next six months? I was still planning on playing golf the following year. And I got home and I've read an art newspaper article on the front page of a newspaper that just said Texas was deregulating on January 1st. This was in like October. And literally the next day I had a buddy that called me who was going to start a retail electric provider. And so I did sales for him for a few months. And then I started my own brokerage. And literally I was just planning on doing it for six months until going back to play professional golf again. And here I am 20 years later, still doing that's actually my job. Um, but that's when I started playing a lot of poker. And it's funny because I actually met Chris Como, you know, Tiger's old instructor, Jason Day, DeChambeau's guy. He and I met playing underground in an underground poker room here in Dallas in like 2004. And you don't sit around in illegal card rooms, at least in Dallas, and, you know, ask people what you do for a living. So we were actually friends for like over a year before finally saying like, so what do you do for a living? He's like, well, I teach golf. I'm like, holy shit, I play professional golf. It had somehow never come up. And so he and I started really talking about a lot of push fold type strategies for satellites. Um, and then really I started applying that mentality to golf in about 2007, six, seven, eight, something like that. I actually entered Q school as a 35 year old amateur in 2008, got through all four stages, went back and played professionally for a couple of years while also having a full-time job, which worked out as about as well as you would expect that to. 
And then, uh, you know, that was when the stroke gain statistics were first coming out. And so it was actually in June of 2011, I wrote a thread in two plus two that was titled is dry for show putt for dough really true. And it was a bunch of really awful math, averaging a bunch of things you shouldn't average, but it was just like, you could see the light bulb turning from like, I've already been applying like poker psychology and some ideas to golf. And now all of a sudden we're getting some actual data that's better than putts per green and regulation and nonsense. And it's funny because actually just two days ago, an old uh, former assistant from Bent Tree, where Will Zaltorce and I grew up, he sent me an email from, it was like from February of 2012, where I was literally starting to talk about this stuff in more depth, um, this stuff being just strokes gained and everything. So anyways, I, I wound up in 2013 as they were releasing more and more of the strokes gained statistics. I just realized that I could take all of the strokes gained statistics, how many strokes it takes to hole out from any given area. And then I could combine that with, you know, basically shot link, excuse me, shot pattern data from launch monitors like TrackMan and a Foresight Quad. Basically quantifies the size, quantify the size of shot patterns and then basically use that in, in like a giant Reese's peanut butter cup where you just meld the chocolate and peanut butter together and, and solve course management. So that's really what I did over about a six month period. And then when it came time to, uh, to use it for my own game, I got a cortisone shot in my right elbow and the doctor paralyzed my right arm, which luckily came back. But uh, that was why I, I spoiler alerted myself already by saying Will Zalatoris grew up at my home course uh, in Dallas. So once I couldn't play in the Texas amateur back in 2014, I called Will and was just like, let me caddy for you next week. And I'll, you know, I guarantee you, you'll win if you just do what I tell you to do. Obviously, as we've seen now, the kid's an amazing ball striker, um, obviously struggles with his putting a little bit, but I was just looking at like, did you tell him as the, good as you, did huh? you tell him the putting thing, just to distance, just to tell him focus on distance to not solve his putting. Well, just hit it as far as you can hit a bunch of wedges on the green. Well, that's honestly, it's funny because that's literally what this email in 2012 basically said. I'm like, you know, what we want to do with Will is get him on the green as quickly as possible, as paradoxical as that sounds for someone who struggles with their putting. I want them putting as quickly as possible because that's going to ensure they've got the shortest second putt. And then this email actually reads on with me saying, as his putting improves and as his wedge game improves, then we'll start getting more aggressive on his targets well obviously i caddied for him and he won the texas amateur and then a month later i caddied for him when he won the u.s junior and then only because i'm in dallas dechambeau was the next player that i worked with because he was at smu here um and so the smu head coach jason enlow asked me if i could create like an indoor seminar teaching what i was doing with will so i literally made the decade seminar for bryson because i had to teach it indoors so i wouldn't be a you know considered a third paid coach and so I taught that all to him in February of 2015, about, you know, 90 days before he won the NCAAs and then the U.S. Amateur. And next thing you know, apparently I'm a strategy expert. <laughs> it's been it's been pretty funny because it really is like this mystical folklorish uh, aspect of the game where you just look back at the old stuff as it was taught. And it's like, what is this based on? Because it's literally a bunch of like teaching pros who some of them have obviously played on the tour and been good stuff, but it's been, been good players. But it was literally just based on nothing before like, well, we've got to do this and shape this and do that. And it really, it's, it's, the game is a paradox. It's so hard that you have to play it correctly, which then actually makes it really easy, which is a strange thing for people to wrap their head around for the most part. How much did you have to do with like Bryson's strategy around just hitting the ball far? Like, and was that, cause obviously well, that's not like when I, if, if I, and I, I basically like downloaded the app, recently and and watch some of the videos and i'm a i'm like a nine i'm your classic you know recreational golfer trying to get better you know for me the takeaways are like aim at the middle of the green away from the trouble kind of thing like uh you know it's easier to prevent strokes than to gain strokes like some of the basic stuff that you talk about which i think is pretty pretty helpful to reinforce to someone like myself but like I was actually playing with a buddy today who played at Cal and he studied, he uh, played with the uh, studied under Jamie Mulligan. And so he was actually asking me, you know, like, Hey, you should ask him like this. What does he think about Bryson? Just like in all this new wave of like people just trying to hit the ball as far as possible to like in length and distance, does that play into decade well, was, at all? Or? It, was, it was my idea. So, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so if you go back to 2015, Bryson, you know, he's just a 175 pound college kid. He had what he called his fairway finder and what he then called the big ball. 
And so the way I usually work with college players, because I've already been banned by the NCAA for, uh, for what I do, they, they called my seminar an unfair competitive advantage and banned me. Compliment. Luckily, I'd already worked with Bryson at the time. Well, but still, I didn't, I never really saw my players hit balls. I just teach course management, which as odd as it sounds, I can do that better indoors than I can out on a course because we've removed the emotion of hitting the shots. And so, you know, Bryson wins the NCAAs. Okay, cool. And then it was that summer. Zalatoris was really like he was just struggling with his game. Um, you know, this is after he had won the U.S. Junior in 2014. So this is after his freshman year in college. And he just wasn't playing well. And he's calling me just like, dude, I'm just playing terrible, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like watching him hit some balls in the range. I'm like, you look like you're hitting it fine to me. I think you're just in your head a little too much. And he was just going on and on and on about how bad it was. I was like, okay, when's your next term? He said, next week, the Pat Coast Amateur in Eugene. I'm like, cool. Got on my phone, booked a flight. I'm like, I'm going to come caddy for you next week. And he's literally freaking out. Well, I called Bryson also. And, and again, I'd never seen him hit a golf ball outside before. Um, or never seen him hit a golf ball indoors either at the point. <laughs> I always say that because I've seen him hit balls in Como's house so many times now. Um, but I had not seen him hit a golf ball before. And so the first three, four holes at Eugene Country Club are kind of tight tree-lined holes. And he just hit his little 280-yard fairway finder out there. And we get on like five. And I'm like, all right, dude, I want to see it. You've got the big ball. Like, show me something. And he literally teed it up like three inches higher, made the most ridiculous swing, kind of like the ones he does now, just at 170 pounds instead of 230. And he just hit it 320, 330 when the first one's been 280. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? You can't leave that in the bag. And this is what's so funny. I wish I had, I would give anything to have this conversation on film because nobody would believe it. Like, I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I don't want to swing any harder than that because if I do, it's just going to hurt the longevity of my career. You just can't swing that hard very often and not get injured. And I'm like, if you could see yourself in seven years, you would literally drop dead right now. I mean, and he totally believed it. And I was like, man, you've got to get over that. You cannot leave 40 or 50 yards in the tank. And so, you know, I was on him for a couple of years. They were hit, hit that ball, hit it harder, hit it harder, hit it harder. And honestly, I don't know what finally triggered him to just go ridiculous with it, but I will say middle late last year when he just kept on trying to go further and further, I do think there is like where the, the, the folklore golf course architecture, people that hate me so much, they just think that distance is going to compound into infinity and like people are going to be hitting at 900 yards eventually. I'm like, I do think there ultimately is a functional like distance you can hit it because if you just think of a triangle, the longer the triangle goes out, the wider your shot pattern becomes. It just is what it is. There is a limit as to how much offline you can hit it and it still be functional. And I think he's butting up on the edge of that at like 195-ish mile an hour ball speed. I just, I don't think you can get it and play much over that and, and actually get around the golf course. So yes, I, I think, well, another thing that's funny about Bryson, if you look at the PGA that Morikawa won, I mean, I still do, you know, I worked closely with Bryson for about three years until he got out on the PGA tour and was through his rookie year, but I still do, you know, Como is still one of my best friends, his little indoor living room labs just down the street from me here in, in Frisco, Texas. Um, and so the PGA that Morikawa won, I was yelling at Como. I'm like, he's hitting three wood too often, man, if it's making this up. But if it's a driver on six, it's a driver on 14. They're the exact same widths of holes. For whatever reason, it doesn't fit his eye, but he needs to get over that and send driver. So he dropped back, in my opinion, too often at the PGA at Harding Park. And then the exact same thing, I'm telling Como going into Wingfoot. I'm like, it's driver everywhere here, except for two and eight, which dogleg right. And he likes drawing the driver. Those are holes he needs to drop back to three wood. And then he gets up on those two holes and they actually didn't hurt his eye too much. He thought he could take it over the corners. And those are literally the only eight bad drives he hit all week were on two and eight, which was, I was like, okay, well, at least you went the other extreme and you hit driver too much than too little. It is similar to when you're not hitting driver enough, like in poker, if you're not playing enough suited connectors and, and hands in the right positions where you're just folding away too much equity. That's how I view not hitting driver enough. You're just folding away a little too much equity. And at this level, you've, you've got to push every edge as much as you can. Do we, so you mentioned um, that, that, well, the, the Bryson being worried about injury, I, I kind of find it, a little bit ironic right now that he has the broken hand, right? And and uh, the whatever bone in the hand. I feel like at this point, like someone's swinging as hard as he does. I mean, I don't know, like 
clearly it is advent it's advantageous right now but do we do we really know long term if the body is going to be like clearly not i I, but i do believe that golf it is now it's it's more of a a fullback type job you're not going to have I mean, you sure you will have guys that maybe have 40 year career or 40 years play till they're 40. It's going to start being fewer and further between. I do believe, and I do believe that the data and everything shows this now hitting it far is actually disproportionately rewarded in golf. Whereas like all the other aspects, like it's nice to hit it, chip it well and put it well and whatever, but just the simple fact of being able to bomb it is disproportionately important in the game. And I look back at my own game, you know, I'm, I'm six, six, one, two twenty. I'm a pretty big dude. I hit it pretty far. And looking back at my own professional career, how far I hit it was a mask for the rest of how bad the rest of my game was. And, you know, now that I'm 48 and going to try to play the senior tour in two years, I'm going to try to rectify the rest of that. But I mean, I won 10 professional events, 72 whole events. Like I was, I was competitive and probably all of my game was awful, except for the fact that I could hit it you know, 330, 340, even back in the late nineties, early two thousands. And it just, it hides everything. What's funny is, I mean, that, that, you know, my betting, like for years, I've been betting on guys that are really good, like really long off the tee. And just because if you're long off the tee, you have so much more upside um, than, you know, then like, I, I don't like a Kevin Na type where everything else has to be like, you know, he can win but everything has to be basically perfect. Whereas like, if you have two golfers that have the same scoring average on the same courses against the same competition, you want the longer golfer every time. I, I mean, I totally agree. And then, but this is what's so funny when I was actually just looking up over here while, while you were talking Bryson stats, the funniest thing to me about Bryson is everybody's just like, well, yeah, but get him on the green. I'm like, okay, 2020, he was 20th in strokes gain putting. The year before that, he was 10th. The year before that, he was 28th. Like, (laughs) you don't get to just say because someone hits it far, they don't putt it good, too. This dude can roll it. Like, he's one of the best players on the planet, and he's pushing these envelopes to points where, again, at this point, I do think think looking back at it, I think it's funny that we needed data to illustrate that hitting it far was so important. Um, But at this point, that code is cracked. And Bryson gained 1.162 strokes off the tee last year. There's only been one strokes gained putting season in the history of the tour that's over one. And Bryson, you know, it was 1.1 something with Jason Day in, in whatever year it was that he was number one in the world. Um, and I do just think that sending it like you can just send it every single day and you can't putt good every single day. It's just not the way it works. Um and it's funny because looking back, even at my, like my junior golf career, I can remember my dad always give me, my dad was a good putter, but he bunted it. And he would always be like, well, you, you can't hit it good every day, but you can putt good every day. And it's like, no, actually that's not correct. You, you can putt it great every single day and still make nothing. Like that's the problem with putting. But if you drive it well, you're pretty much going to drive it well a lot. <laughs> and then, like you said, there's Kevin Nas just not going to gain 1.1 off the tee. One of the, um, things I was mentioning up before we got on, you know, I like had watched the video and I, 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 there were some things that I really liked about even just the one video sort of, I watched last night, the sort of introduction, which talks about kind of like not seeing the flag and then also like not trying to make putts kind of thing that, that mentality. And so today I was playing kind of a short par five that I, you know, I just hit three wood off the tee and then I hit a four iron, you know, to a really, you know, manageable distance. And then I, I had your mind in my head as I was doing this like 80 yard kind of pitch up there uh, where I, I literally aimed not at the flag, but at the middle of the green. And I was like, luck and dispersion will be my guide to actually get a birdie. And as fate would have it, I kind of pulled it a little from my target, which brought it up to about six feet from the hole or maybe five feet from the hole. And then of course I missed the putt, but the, the, the moral of the story is I was in position to make a birdie. And I, I like that idea because almost like what you're saying on this distance stuff is, you know, the distance stuff is predictable and it gets you in position where you probably have a much bigger opportunity to get lucky, to make a birdie kind of thing. Right. And also you talk about, 
sort of this idea of don't worry about trying to get birdies except for you get them on your par fives right and some distance also will help you on the par fives get get birdies right well there, there are there's just three core tenets that i really try to shift people's mindset around stop trying to make putts winning requires luck and stop trying to make birdies which sounds so crazy but it is funny when you start listening to players that i work with now you, you hear Kevin Kisner and, and Keith Mitchell and these guys literally just quoting this stuff out there verbatim sometimes. And I think it's hilarious. Stuart Sink. I mean, it, it is comical. I, I do think that I had the right combination. I'm, I'm not the smartest guy on the planet. I'm not the best golfer on the planet, but I'm pretty damn good at both of them. And I, honestly, the, 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 what I would say I'm more gifted in, if you will, is, is logic. I was in those, you know, advanced classes whenever I was a kid. And I just, I would sit there and do those grid style logic problems for eight hours a day, two days a week in, in elementary school, literally for six straight years. I just loved doing those things. It was definitely neurotic to the point of doing it. But now that's how I feel like, you know, I've been able to crack a code that is, again, it is common sense and, and great teachers have taught it, you know, for years but also great teachers have not taught it for years. Great teachers have taught exactly the wrong thing. And, and so using the data and, and more than anything, like the shot link images, there's certain times, like I don't even need math. Like look at this image of a shot pattern on a par three. You don't even, you, there's, you can't even argue with it sometimes. How come you, you're, sorry, go ahead Rufus. Well, actually, I just did really quickly, I did a little correlation here of just the guys in the Texas Open, my, my power ratings to them on driving distance and putting. And actually there's a pretty, there's a negative correlation overall between like guys that hit the ball long and, and guys that putt well. And I think, I think large, and I feel like DeChambeau's the, is sort of the exception there. And I think it's because I would guess, and I'm sure you're going to agree that, that one requires feel and the other doesn't touch, right? Cause driving, you know, I don't know, honestly, I would have to see, like, I would have to see that data. I mean, I'm sure it's right, but honestly, I think that it's also, People like practicing what they're good at. I love hitting the ball. I love hitting balls. I love hitting the ball hard. I can sit out there all day long and just send drivers on a driving range and enjoy it. I don't really enjoy putting that much. Sure, it's also not my best. It's not that I don't enjoy it because I'm not necessarily good at it. I think it's kind of boring. boring. And so I just like you know hitting balls more. And, and also, there can only be so many number ones in the world. And if you are long and you are a good putter, there's a pretty good chance you're going to be one of the 10 best players on the planet. And there's just not a whole lot of spots for that. And I know that doesn't trump the fact that it's negatively correlated or anything, but also it's, it's just hard to, there, there is an opportunity cost of time of, of doing everything. Oh, I wasn't saying it's causal at all. I just, no, think no, no. I know that I'm just saying, I'm normally just saying you associate guys that are bombers, like with being not generally great short games as much, like just that's the association I think probably comes from somewhere, but I mean, not that the two are actually not. Well, that it's it tough to, to shut down I mean, speed. I mean, so you're definitely right. I, again, that's where I, I, I don't really, I, th I do think of putting as being a totally different game. It's like tennis to me. Yeah. Like that's how different putting is than, than ball striking to me in golf. Short game, it's a little bit closer. And I, I've got this shot that I talk about all the time where instead of like using my normal interlocking grip on like a 60 yard, 60 degree shot, I go to a reverse overlap because that really just helps take some of your hands out of the shot. And I know some of my players that have speed have, have worked on stuff like that because it is just hard if you've got 120 plus mile an hour club head speed to take a short shot and keep the hands totally out of it. It's, it's just a very difficult thing to do. It's, it's why they've got speed. So I want to make a comparison to sort of baseball and the sabermetric revolution and sort of where we are with that now. Like, it feels like we're kind of headed in that direction with golf. I mean, like sites like Data Golf are out actually publishing, like making people smarter with like good data out there. I mean, before there was no real way to talk about a player, like statistically, like, what do you, what do you quote? I mean, um, strokes <laughs> gained has kind of changed that. Like, where, where are we in this metaphor, like time-wise? Like, are we in 1995? Are we uh, on? You know baseball? what? It's funny is, I feel because I've been doing this for 12 years now. I mean, really, even more than that. Like, I've really been thinking about golf as a math game. I mean, probably since like 2006. Um, and so, to me, I feel like everybody knows. Like, there are so many times when I'm doing my seminars or speaking at a PGA section or something like that. I'm just like, at what point are these people going to get sick of hearing me say the same thing? And then I'll ask, you know, out of a room of a hundred people, like five have heard me speak before 30 don't even know who I am. 30 are like, yeah, I've heard your name. So 
I somehow think we're still in the first inning. I just, I literally can't believe that. Now, what I will say at this point on tour, I mean, there's just nobody that doesn't know what I do. I mean, I've worked with literally 50 people on any given week at this point. Um, And even the ones that I haven't worked with, they're at least familiar and they kind of know what's going on. It's, it's funny because I really have worked with the vast majority of people that are under the age of 25 on the PGA tour at this point. And, and I don't know how old Scotty Scheffler is, but since he's from Dallas, I do think most people have, have thought, you know, he certainly, he works with Scheffler too. And I've, I've not, I mean, I know Scotty, but he was, he went to UT and he's just always been, he's got a great instructor in Randy Smith here in Dallas, who I definitely know gets out there and teaches him how to play. But what I will say is Ted Scott, I've worked pretty closely with for almost five years now, four years with Bubba. Ted's coming to my seminar twice. He and I have spent a decent amount of time together. And it is funny to me, I sent him a text right whenever Scotty hired him. I was like, oh, dude, that is a very good hire. Like Bubba getting rid of Ted and then him going to Scotty, obviously in hindsight, was a great deal, but I told Ted in advance, I'm like, dude, this guy's a world beater. Like, and now I don't have a clue how he does or doesn't think about strategy. I have no idea, but I know what Ted thinks. And I know that's going to be a damn good combination. It's just crazy to watch them do what they've done again. Cause sometimes a lot of these things are just, they're pretty easy to clean up again. I don't know. And maybe they're not doing anything. And again, I'm not saying decade related, but it's strategy related. Um, I guarantee you Ted's, Ted's done something to shift how he views a few things, you know, obviously. So when you, when you go back to um, the idea of what you do, like shouldn't, shouldn't decade be required for every caddy on the tour? I would think like, like, and I, I would assume that you, you must get in demand to be a caddy, right? Because of the ability that you have to sort of break things down from a course management analytics standpoint, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, but I'm, I'm lucky in the fact that I, I don't want to do that. I don't even want to travel out on tour. So I just don't, I don't bother to me the way I look at it with to, to charge some of these guys, you know, $2,000 or something like, I don't want to do that to charge them something tangible, 20 or 30,000. Well, then they're going to expect you to come out there on tour, you know, five to 10 times a year. And, and that's not how I want to spend my life. So I really give the vast majority of these guys a pretty solid, you know, three to five hours um, because it's just not that, what, again, what I teach, it's just not that hard once you, especially if you've got a golf IQ of a tour player. Um, I did, Stuart Sink bought the Decade app. It's pretty funny. I've got a, a little deal where I can see sales come across my screen throughout the day. Um, and, a, and a year and a half ago, a little sale shot across with Stuart Sink. I'm like, that's weird. So I shot my, you know, my programmer a message just like, can you tell me anything about his IP address or anything? And he's like, yeah, it's in Ponte Vedra. I'm like, holy shit. I bet that's Stuart Sink. You know, it's not like I'm going to reach out to him or anything like that. I just noticed he bought it. Um, and then he won the next week in Napa and literally he hadn't won in 12 years. He won the following week. He is one guy that watching what he's done. And then after he won again in at Harbor town and you can literally he, hear him and Reagan. I mean, just literally doing the exact decade math quite well throughout the entire telecast. And I did send him an email afterwards. He and I emailed a couple times after he won. I was like, that's pretty cool, man. You know, congratulations, whatever. And after that, when I probably overstepped my, my bounds with him, cause I was like, I've got an idea. If you want to do something with Reagan, um, I do think that I could charge 10 or 15,000. The problem is, is the, caddies are somewhat transient and the tour players want to fire them whenever they want to. And so for them to pay 10 or 15 for a caddy to come to a school, because again, I don't want to go out to a tour event, but I do think that I could get 10 caddies to Dallas at once for 10,000 a piece and have it be a pretty damn good, like three day camp. Um, but who's going to pay for it? Cause you know, caddies, a lot of them have some money, but a lot of them don't. And the tour players aren't going to really want to invest in those guys, especially with one of what I teach. I just think it's pretty simple. I mean, so I just, I just kind of teach it to most of those guys and then yeah. trust decade sales well, will come from it. How much like relies on like how, how I, I guess that these guys know their shot dispersion patterns really well. And it comes down to that. And so they could say, okay, 180 yards, like, or let's say 280 yards, the fairway width is this, this is how my dispersion, you know, but at 300, this is the fairway width you know, if it- there's anything that I do think that I've brought to the game, it's the idea of using dispersion and shot patterns and laying it over satellite images. 
and then getting out of all the, you know, again, the mystery of, well, this is a blind shot. Not really. Like <laughs> we just look at it on a satellite and you can tell exactly where to aim any given tee shot there. There just are no tricks anymore. And so really with, with like using their own shot patterns, they need to know how far they carry their driver and how wide their shot pattern is on a range. But what I did back in 2013, I mean, I literally hit thousands of balls and crosswinds from all different directions. I made some assumptions. Okay, here's how tight my shot pattern is indoors, first of all. And now here's how what it is on just a driving range. And now here's what it is on a golf course. And so you do have to just make, it's not just as simple as, well, my shot pattern's 42 yards wide on a range. Let's go ship driver everywhere. That's just not how it works. But now picture yourself on a tight hole that's got, you know, number 18 at Sawgrass. There's a lake along the left and you've hit a thousand drivers and you know your shot pattern, 90% of it is contained within 60 yards. Now that's where the confidence starts coming from because you don't have to line up and think, don't go left. You pick a spot that's 30 yards right of the water and you hit your driver as hard as you possibly can at it. And then the other thing that I think I've brought to the game is I know that I would have done that back whenever I was playing professionally, but I'd been over it and kind of thinking, well, it's okay if I pull it though. Well, no, because you don't hit a ball ever on a driving range and think if I pull it 20 yards, all the better. But now it it is just, it is crazy to me how the biggest, the, the most consistent thing with tour players when we first have this conversation is just like, I can't give you, let's pretend a pin is four yards from the left edge of the green. I give you a target that's five yards right of that. You can't aim there and then hope you pull it a little bit because you've just never done that on a driving range. And so, so much of what I think I clean up with these guys is just the outlier shots because the vast majority of outlier shots come from, they didn't know exactly what they were trying to do with the shot. Well, if you go through the decade process, you're going to have an exact target period. And then you also trust your shot pattern has variance to it and you don't know what shot's coming next, and you've never, again, sat on a driving range and thought, I hope I pull it, that's where outlier shots come from because now you're putting kind of a wishy-washy swing on it that is probably on a hard-ish shot. That's why you're aiming away from this pin. Um, and, and that's I do believe that's where the vast majority of outliers come from. So it's like, stop trying to work it so much. Commit to your target. You're, and- you're in a way, eliminating the parameter variance. And, just, and so it's all a golfer has left is the process variance, right? Just this is, this is where to aim. This is your pattern. You don't know, like there there's, here's the randomness of, of that's just inherent in a golf shot. It is, it's plug and play at some point again. So when Stuart sink one in Harbor town, like I was on Twitter, cause I was just laughing. I'm like, they were in the ninth, the 18th fairway rather on Friday. And they're talking about like, well, a par here will tie the 36 hole record. A birdie will beat it. And you can hear him and Reagan saying, okay, we're 187. So that's nine, which is just this baseline number, whatever, nine plus three for the water. So our target's 12 yards right of the left edge of the green, the pins four. So our target's eight yards right of the pin. Like it is that simple at the end of the day. Um, damn it. You had, what was your, what was your statement? Cause I had a, where I was somewhere I was going with that. Oh, and then Stuart went on uh, PJ tour radio. So PJ tour radio called me and they were like, Hey, we see you're tweeting about Stuart. You want to come on tomorrow? So I did. And then they had Stuart sink on the day after me. And they were just like, well, what, what happened? How did you find this? He's like, honestly, I was, I fired my caddy and Reagan was going to come caddy for me. So I just did like, I was just searching around on the internet, trying to find any sort of course management stuff to teach him. I found this and I've got something where I talk about the standard deviations, the size of your shot pattern with like a nine iron. He's like, he gave me these numbers. He's like, I turned the first video off like five minutes into it. I went out to the range and I hit 29 irons and my shot pattern was basically the exact size he said it would be. And he's like, that's weird. And he just, from that point, he just totally bought in. And again, that's the key is again, if you've got a nine iron and you hit it 150 yards, your shot pattern at the tour level is going to be 20 plus yards wide. It just is. And it's hard for people to appreciate that, but it just is. And so when you're aiming at a white flag at 150 on the range, you just don't know which shot's coming next. The one 10 yards left, 10 yards right, right at it, five left, five right, short, long. You, you have a shotgun blast, which is, I think, again, one of the main things I've said is just you have a shotgun, not a sniper rifle. And once you understand that, you, you have a shotgun with 50 BBs in it. And when you pull the trigger, only one comes out and you don't know which one's going to come out. That's really what golf is, essentially. So you might ask, when, when, you, when you quote a disparate, like 20 yards wide, is that that's 
what is what interval like what range is that that's not the standard deviation right i would guess no 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 no. that's gonna be just like probably the double actual... the standard deviation no not quite double um standard deviation would probably be like seven or eight yards on that okay. on a nine iron at 150 um that's pretty tight to me Oh, it's really, I mean, again, I'm talking in practice though, for that. I mean, again, that's, what's crazy though, is when I throw these numbers out at people I've got in the, in the app and you'll see it eventually I've got, I had Aaron wise who I had him hit 27 irons for me at the other end of the range at at TPC Summerlin. When he was the reigning PGA tour rookie of the year, he'd won the Byron Nelson just a couple months earlier. This guy's really, really good at golf. And his shot pattern was 28 yards wide with a seven iron on a driving range, normalized to no wind. And people just look at it and they're like, no way. Well, then the, the next video that I always use in the app is this, this shot link image from number 15 at Innisbrook, where the hole's playing 199 yards this day. And the shot pattern is literally 50 yards wide and 50 yards deep. It's insane how big the shot pattern is, considering it's a PGA Tour event. Like it literally looks like something amateurs would do. And what's interesting though, is that's the one that I use in the app so much. And again, I've, I've worked with a lot of tour players at this point. And just last week or two weeks ago, 15, it played with its lowest scoring average ever. Like I, I consistently, whenever I talk about the same hole with tour players that next year, it's going to play with a, a significantly better scoring average than normal. And it did this year. So um, I was going to ask you a question about uh, you, you mentioned sawgrass um, 17 uh, on Saturday at the players all these people are hitting in the water, right? If you're caddying that day for them, what do you tell them to do? Well, that was blowing 900 miles an hour. So it's not, it's, it, but that day it is literally the dead, the, the target is the dead center of that green. Right. I mean, and again, what's, what's interesting with that one now, granted, obviously this year there was a lot of wind and there's always more wind in Florida than there is in Palm Springs. But number 17 in Palm Springs is an island green. The hole plays 30 yards longer. The green is seven yards more narrow. And the scoring average is typically lower on that hole because everybody gets up on that hole and it's like 165. The green is small. And they're like, holy shit, I just want to find dirt. Everybody in the field is playing aggressively to the dead center of that green. You get on 17 at Sawgrass. The green is huge. It's 27 yards wide. It's 135. So these guys have a pitching wedge or a gap wedge in their hand, you know, again, not this year with the wind and everything, but typically. And so they're like, well, I can try to get a little bit more aggressive than middle of the green. It's like, dude, you should probably hit it to the middle of the green. I don't care where the pin is all the time on 17. There's just not really any ever a spot that you should be maybe two or three yards away from the middle of the green to whichever quadrant the, the pin is on but it's such a small amount. It's hard to quantify that just dead center of that green every single time would be a great play. In the, in those conditions with the wind as it was, and like, would there be advice that you would, you would want to give someone in terms of, you know, some of the different types of shots that they could play into that, that might have a lower dispersion or like, do you, how do you, how do you think about that in terms of advice? You know, I'm not, a, I don't teach mechanics. Um, and so I would definitely push that more on the instructor's side. I just teach people the scoring side of it, but I mean, sure. But the, I mean, again, it's just such a fluky year. I mean, it's just that year was this year was just such a fluke, but yeah, having a little shot that you can, you can stand a little closer to grip down on that's going to take some spin off. That's going to flight it. That's probably a good idea, but also, I mean, when it's blown, the, the problem is, is a five mile an hour wind isn't five miles an hour. It's two to seven miles an hour. A 15 miles an hour wind isn't 15. It's 10 to 20. A 30 mile an hour wind isn't 30. It's 20 to 40. So as you get more wind, you get a wider range of potential wind outcomes. And that's, that's the whole problem. I mean, again, I, I, I think the numbers of there's a PJ tour study with a six iron that hit with the exact same trajectory, the exact same spin, the exact same launch, just everything, identical shot, calm carries 184 into a 20 mile an hour or into a 10 mile an hour wind. I think it's 18 yards less and into a 20 mile an hour wind again, without flighting it or anything, it's 41 yards less. I mean, it's literally insane. Now, nobody's going to stand up there from 143 and launch a six iron, just straight up into the wind and cross their fingers. But honestly, part of me wonders, would that be better? Like, because it was pretty ugly what they were doing. Um, 
but at the end of the day that it's just so windy and so dumb. Well, it, it gets back to that, that PXG robot that hit the hole in one on number 16 at TPC Scottsdale, probably three or four years ago. Now at this point, everyone's like, my, Oh my God, the robot hit a hole in one. I'm like, yeah. And it also missed the green left and right. And it was blowing about five miles an hour downwind off the right. So yeah, the robot hit a hole in one and it also missed the green left and right because of subtle variances in wind. Again, if it was blowing 30, just like a wind tunnel, it would be a non-factor because you could perfectly calibrate exactly what to do, but that's just not, it's just not the way the game works. It's again, golf is the largest outdoor sport played with the ball in the air, the longest of any sport in the world. Like that's a big problem. And that really is what makes golf so hard ultimately. So like anecdotal example, recently I, you know, I was just working on my short game and I tried like, you know, I know my uncle's always said, Oh, use this, use a seven iron. Like, you know, if he uses a seven iron around the green to chip. Right. And like, I was like, man, like I actually was doing quite well with it. And, and then I got to a point where I was like, you know, I, I, I went on the driving range and was working on some like little half shots, like punch shots. Cause I hit punch shots really well, typically. Um, Cause I'm not focused on like, Oh, don't miss whatever. It's, it's just like, I, I don't know, for whatever reason, it's more processy for me. Um, and I wonder how much, um, I mean, it got me thinking, like, would I be more accurate if there was no forced carry, essentially hitting like a little punch seven iron from 120 yards than a sand wedge? And I mean, what's, I, your, what's your handicap approximately? Uh, 7.3. Approximately. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's conceivable. I mean, the thing about it is, so if you imagine a fairway bunker, what the, what the, the phenomenon that you're running into there. If you imagine a fairway bunker and the golf ball just sitting on top of the sand and you've got a sand wedge, you, you only, you, you have to get the ball under like the bottom quarter of the ball in order to be hitting it with somewhat true loft. A seven iron, if I just get the leading edge under the equator of the ball, I'm going to hit it with the loft I intended to. And so the, the, that's why just literally taking these really hard swings with a, a, a like a nine iron playing an explosion shot from 60 yards out of a bunker like it works until it doesn't um <laughs> and so what you're doing there is you're just ensuring that you're hitting it probably a little bit more solid and kind of with the intended loft as opposed to when you hit have a sandwich you probably hit it fat and a little thin from time to time oh, yeah and definitely. then you're not hitting it with the intended loft and that's really the biggest problem overall I mean, it boils down to the fact that I'm a shitty golfer. That certainly plays into it. <laughs> can we, can, can we Wait, talk? Can we go back to this? 7.3 is not bad. That's, that's a good player. I mean, that's, your, that's, that's totally fine. I mean, what? I have like 15 shots on Jeff, so. No, you don't have 15 on me. But you can give me 15 next time. There we go. It's not what I gave. I was going to say, you kind of hurt yourself I there, Rufus. 16 yeah, last well, time, Jeff, 15, I think. 15 would be great. I can't wait. Um. So if you go back to this, uh, this concept that you're talking about, so then you're you basically the sand wedge is, is le less, you're saying there's less uh, room for error in terms of getting the there's exact There's no block. room for error. I mean, you there's literally more, no. You have to be more precise. Yeah. So, so imagine if I was now, let, to, to where I was kind of going with that is if I was 90 yards in a bunker, like that would be, if I was 90 yards in a fairway, which is a perfect little flighty 56 for me. If I were 90 yards in a fairway bunker, I have zero margin for error to get the leading edge under the equator of the ball and also not hit it fat. I mean, there's literally just millimeters that you can accomplish that with. But now if I took a nine iron and it's, I can get that under, I, I still have to get it under the equator of the ball, but I don't have to get it as under in order to hit it with the loft I've intended to because there's less loft. It would be the same thing with doing it with like a four iron. And so people, when you get to, to and I know we're, we're all sitting here with our hands, like imagine, I know they can see me now. Here's the, the golf ball. I've got loft. I have to catch it under, but not fat. It's just a really difficult thing to do. And so what you're doing, and, and it is, it's the same thing when people chip around the greens with like a seven iron. I, I laugh sometimes when I see like an amateur, they're, they're over there with like a seven iron and they've got like, 15 feet of rough to cover and then only like 10 feet of green i'm like this is a flop shot what are you doing but it's just what they chip with and they usually do i mean decent because they're going to at least kind of catch it solid with a little bit of speed um 
you're just hitting it with the loft and the club head speed intended to far more often. So you mentioned um, this whole idea of putting and sort of it being speed. Like I watched the video on the dispersion and distances and for putting. I know you're not an instructor, but what kind of uh, drills would you recommend for 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 speed putting or whatever for di- like for to to get better at, at the speed of for putting? a 22 handicap? I mean, honestly, 19, just well, 19, 19, 19, 19 handicap. 19 ladder drills where you're trying to roll the ball around the previous putt and you'll see i don't know if you guys got the full version of the app or not I'll, I'll send it to you if you didn't but in month two of our foundations course i've got two i, I uh, bought it so you saw okay. i bought i paid for the real thing so perfect I downloaded the yardage book for las vegas national where i played two days ago in, in, in month two of foundations i've got three different speed drills one that I've learned from Cameron McCormick that he used to use the Jordan speed, but I've, I've made it different to where it's easier to do by yourself. So in their drill, you're constantly laddering around the prior putt. So you hit a putt out there, seven, eight feet. Then you're trying to roll the next putt past that putt, but within like six or nine inches of it. And, but the, the challenge with doing that when you're by yourself is the prior putt constantly gets in the way. And then you have to wind up going all and So the putt winds up having tons of break. The way that I change that is you set up four ball marks that are about, you know, call it nine inches apart, something like that. Um, Four that are a foot apart is fine too. So you've got one ball mark and then go a foot in a straight line, another ball mark, another ball mark. So they're all in a straight line. You start at five feet and you're trying to roll it between the first and the second ball mark, which is a one foot window. If you're successful, you ladder yourself backwards six inches and you just keep on working on a straight line away from that putt. And so then you're constantly trying to ladder into the between the first and the second ball mark. Once you get to 10 feet, you're trying to lag it between the first and the third ball mark. So that should be like a two foot window. And again, so now you've, you can use more golf balls while you're doing this, um, because even if you hit the ball, the prior putt, you can kind of tell if the speed was going to be good or not. It's just not as it's, it's a little bit easier to do by yourself. So we've got that drill and you take that all the way out to like 40 feet. And then I've got another one where Maverick McNeely took that drill and then modified it for five to 15 feet, which that's five to 15 feet is where the vast majority of the the best putters separate themselves. Kind Kind of outside 15 feet, kind of everybody does about the same thing. And inside five feet, there's just not that many putts from three to five feet. I mean, like, so there's, there's, I think there's two and a half putts on average around from three to five feet. And even if you were 10% worse in that bucket which is literally impossible it's impossible to be clever uh, well i mean that's about the i mean literally unless you've got the total yips it's it's impossible to be worse than 10 percent. so if we've got two and a half attempts and you're two 10 percent worse it's only a quarter of a shot again it's not ideal a quarter of a stroke around is a huge amount like from a gambling perspective like uh, uh, someone that's a quarter of a stroke better than another guy per round is going to be um about 54 and a half percent or so to, to beat the other person for the tournament. No, no. So what I'm saying is if you are a terrible putter with the yips in that three to five foot range, it's not ideal, but you can manage it. It's not like I've got the yips. I have absolutely no chance. As long as you've got good speed from outside of 15 feet, you won't three putt as much because you'll be lagging it inside of three feet quite often. That, that's where I'm going with that. Like, I, I know a quarter of a shot's huge, but even if you're, you know, a really yippy bad putter, it's also not the end of the world because you just don't have that many attempts in the window that really matters. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, I want to get into the masters, but I have one last question. Um, so you mentioned like um, a lot of the successes the players have had with your system. I'm curious how you quantify the impact it has, like in terms of, you know, in ter- like a strokes per round. Um, because you know, I, I very much I think in terms try. Of, yeah. <laughs> okay. That's fair. I, I don't care. I mean, again, it's just not. So when I first did this, um, uh, again, like this really is, it's all kind of an accident. Like I really wasn't trying to be some world's leading expert on golf strategy. Like it just, this really is not intended whatsoever. But initially when I first started doing this, I caddied for Zalatoris in about a hundred rounds over like a three year period. Kramer Hickok, his dad and I have been business partners here in Dallas for 20 years on some stuff. And so Kramer, when he got out of UT, I actually caddied for him when he got through Q school um, the first time. So I caddied 
10 or so rounds for him at least. I caddied for Doc Redman and Martin Flores. So I've caddied at least 150 rounds for good players. And I did do a study when I first started doing that. I went and took each one of those players' previous one-year scores and got a scoring average over, you know, 150 rounds from these four guys and then compared it to what it was. And it was about a shot and a half. I was gonna I was gonna say due to due to the aging alone, the age differential, I would have a 20, let's see, what's 25? Like um, let me find a number here. Like for example, a 26 year old or no, a 21 year old should be a quarter stroke better than their previous average just due to age related, at least like in my system. Theoretically, if they're improving. Yes. Well, you expect, cause you expect, you expect them to improve. Whereas someone in their forties, you expect to be continually doing a little bit worse than what they'd been doing in the past. Right. But again, I'm saying this is theoretically overnight. Right. Like I caddy for doc Redmond four rounds period. I took his prior hundred rounds and compared it to just those four rounds. Right. That, no, that's no. what I'm saying. I know what you're he saying. He should be I'm improving saying, over that year. No, 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 shot. I'm saying, I'm saying like, for example, so Rasmus Hoygaard, I have here, I have a minus 0.25 age difference number for, for him, which basically means that if, if I was just going off of his previous stuff, previous over the previous two years, decayed, you know, weighting more recent stuff more heavily, I would expect him to do, a quarter of a stroke be like today a quarter of a stroke better than that average just due to the fact that he's only 21 yes but you also can't compound that for the next 10 years well i mean right but the, your average in the past like continues to change right so i mean yeah yeah well i mean but basically the, the the long i'm glad you told me how to say his name because that's a guy that i've sent packets to for six <laughs> or so months now and i have I'm like I have no idea how to say his but name a, stro a stroke and a half is so much though. i mean like that's like to me i mean that's the difference between like john rob well i don't know actually i shouldn't use john robin as an example because i think he's much better than everybody else thinks even though he's the best golfer in the world not anymore apologies to, ap apologies to scotty Scheffler, but john rom is is the best golfer in the world um not I don't, I don't disagree with that. Yeah. Um, but okay, I do think there's about is, five like, guys that are so what half is like the difference between a fringe pro and like a top five pro, basically. The, the, kind of a, an example of what I can give is more data on that. So when Will, when I caddied for him when he won the Texas Amateur, he shot 10 under, he shot under par four straight days. It was the first time I'd ever do that, first of all. Um, but when we finished, I kind of, we kind of did a, a state of the union the next week where I took all this data to just explain to him, here's, we, we did it before the term. I'm like, here's how we're going to do this. So he, I get total buy-in on, on all the math of what I had done and created. And then we did like an after, like a summary where I'm like, dude, you're not going to believe this because he had just finished his senior year of high school and he had a scoring average like right at par, you know, which means about half the time he's shooting under par and about half the time he's shooting over par. We finished that, that tournament and we met for lunch and I was like, you're not going to believe this, but not only should you not have a scoring average that's over par, you really shouldn't ever shoot over par, in my opinion. I just, when I look at the way you hit the ball, it, again, we're now seeing that, but that's how he hit it when he was 17. Like it, all he's done is gotten a little bit stronger, hits it a little bit further, but he literally hit, hit it the exact same way when he was a kid. It's, it's been the most mind boggling thing to watch growing up. But that's where I'm just like, you should never shoot over par. And from that point forward, he didn't shoot over par for a year. He shot one over par round, and it was his first round ever on the PGA Tour at Riviera. He didn't have a single shot thrown out his fresh round thrown out his freshman year. I mean, it's just, it's literally insane. It, that was as overnight as you can possibly do. And DeChambeau, honestly, was the exact same way. I mean, he was 67th in the world when I put the seminar in for him at SMU. And he was just, he was unbeatable, obviously, from that point forward. Again, these guys are so good. And once you give them a little bit of a brain, I, again, what I really think that if you'd asked me seven years ago, I'd have been like, I'm a brilliant mathematician. It's all the math. But now seven years removed, I'm like, what it actually is, is these P the kids don't have a prefrontal cortex yet. So it's not that they're dumb. Bryson's not dumb. Will's not dumb. But you don't have a functioning brain, a fully functioning brain with a prefrontal cortex that, that synthesizes all of the other inputs into making a cohesive decision. Like they don't have it. It's not that they can't make a good decision. They literally, it's impossible for them to. That's why they make better soldiers than me. Like you, you can't think very well at, at 18. And maybe you've noticed. <laughs> So can I just ask that you text me whenever you start working with someone so I can <laughs> add can, that? can, but I won't. <laughs> there you go.
I mean, it is. Uh, you want to talk a little bit? Sorry, it, it just it is interesting because for ShotLink access, as I told you before, we have to sign a, 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 an ethics clause where we can't be involved in gambling. Um, I mean, it's just it is really incredible. So Adam Shank, the first event of the year this year, he had reached out to me on Twitter somehow, and I spent three or four hours with him. He went out and he had his first ever 54 hole lead that week, finished third. And I get a call from a, a, Keith Mitchell's agent, he's like, honestly, I'm sick and tired of watching you post on Twitter that you worked with someone for the first time and then they finished second or third or whatever. Keith Mitchell's a world beater, but he is totally clueless on so many things. It's ridiculous. Will you spend some time with him? So I was like, sure. So the week of the CJ Cup, we spent about four hours together on two different webinars and phone calls. And he goes out and he was 16 under through 27 holes with a five shot lead. This guy's been negative strokes game putting every year of his career, except for one. Through two events, he was negative two, both of the first two events this season. And I literally, when I see that, I'm like, holy shit, that's impossible unless you've got the yips. And I have to just start my conversation with a guy like that. Do you have the yips? And he says, no. I'm like, are you sure? Like, this is the time to tell me because it's going to change my advice if you do or don't. He's like, dude, I don't. Okay, cool. Then your speed sucks. They can't say it. You can't say that. You can't say that word. Oh, I do. I've seen Tim Cup. That, that's that's why I don't that's why I don't charge these guys anything so I can just tell it like it is and it, otherwise we're gonna beat around the bush for ten hours I'd rather just get it out of the way in five minutes. <laughs> I, I just wish that's, could, a, that's I, a guy I, I where, could have had Keith Mitchell win the CJ 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 Cup for me though. I, I've I been mean, in just, this is just incredible that and I didn't do this math. His agent went and did it. He had seven top twelves in his first hundred and seven starts on tour. In the seven events since, or excuse me, we've, we've it's been ten events since we started working, he's got six or seven in those 10. And, and again, it's just, he is really good. He drives it really well. Um, his iron, his strokes gain approach, he's always negative. What do you think I tell a guy like that? Hey, tell me about your driver. Do you always work it one way? I do. Tell me about your irons. Do you try to shape them both ways? I do. How's that working out, man? <laughs> and then once you see that, it's like, Oh, let's just get these wedges on the green. Let's get some good speed on putts and let's wait out variants. So a lot of it's just understanding, understanding your game is a huge, entirely understanding I mean, your game. Yeah. I mean, again, it's, it's like, it's like front, there's just so many stats that are just mind boggling. They're obvious once you hear them, but they're not until you do from 160 to 180 yards in the fairway, PGA tour players hit the green 71% of the time to back hole locations and to front hole locations, they hit the green 57% of the time from the exact same distance bucket. That's because even at the tour level, they're playing for the perfect shot. And that's, you know, Lou used to do a bunch of data crunching for me and he does a great job with it. And it is just amazing how many little trivial pursuit type facts you can just keep throwing at these guys. And eventually, eventually they're going to listen. I mean, at some point it's just obvious I mean, again, Davis Riley is an, another just perfect example. I, I just joined Merido Country Club here in Dallas, and, and three weeks ago, he and I were on the other end of the range, and I was explaining to him this idea of gaining fractions and tenths of a shot, and I used number 15 at Innisbrook to explain this to him, and I'm like, just hitting the green and two-putting, that would be the equivalent of winning a PJ Tour event, and then he goes out next week with just a totally different mindset, and he loses in a playoff at that exact event. I mean, it, it is just so simple. These kids are so good. We used to think that you would have to get out on tour and spend, you know, 10 years learning all the shots. Like, so that's why you peaked in your mid thirties or early thirties. And it wasn't that you had to get to 25 to get a functioning brain and then spend three or four years figuring it out. And then by the time you were around 30 or 32, you were able to play good golf. Like that's what was happening. It's actually the opposite of you need to get on, on tour and learn all the shots. You've already got all the shots. You just need to learn how to use them. And again, that's what I do think the decade process, it's a six step process. It's impossible to screw it up. It's so simple. If you just run this script over and over and over again, it's pretty straightforward. It's about, it's all about removing emotion. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, we want to let you go, but maybe we can do a couple quick uh, minutes on the masters and any, any thoughts going into that, because we are a, a sports betting podcast. So we like to talk a little bit about, and next, next week we will do a pretty big masters Calcutta um, where we sort of auction off all the golfers and whatnot. Are you have any, any favorites you like going into that? This year? No, <laughs> I really, I really can't. 
it's funny because I started to make sure and tell y'all before, like, I really can't. I, I just, I can't say anything. That the, well, the gambling's on us for ethics. I, I, I really can't do anything with gambling. All right. Well, let's. Can, let's, can we talk a little about about the how about about the course though, and how and how you would approach this if you were working with someone, and how to maximize like, yeah, how to or minimize your strokes around Augusta National. Well, <laughs> that's a great question because I can answer that one. Augusta National favors a right to left ball flight. Number two, number five, number nine, number seven, or excuse me, number ten, number thirteen. The, all the holes except for number 18 turn from right to left. It is why that golf tournament has been won disproportionately by guys who shaped the ball from right to left, the lefties, if you will. Most guys that hit it hard, except for Bryson, most guys who hit it hard like to fade it. So you get Mickelson, Bubba, all those guys. They love hitting fades, but Bryson likes drawing it. So that course sets up really, really well for him because he can hit driver everywhere. It's why I thought two years ago, I'm like, I was texting Combe. I'm like, dude, it's not working. Get the driver that you want at wing foot with. Stop trying to get this 48 incher in play. Bryson just wanted so desperately on 13 to blow it out into 14 fairway and have a hundred yards that he couldn't get out of his own way. Um, but that's why you see guys like Zalatoris and, and, and whoever Dustin uh, drop back to three wood on 10 and 13. Cause that's, that club's easier to draw by putting it back in your stance that changes path rather than having to change your path with your swing, you're changing your path with your ball position. And it's funny because Bubba's a, a, a great example of a guy that he's been a, like a thorn in my side until I met him and, and Ted, you know, Como and I are, are good friends and we debate everything pretty intensely and he was always, you know, five, six years ago when I was always talking about driver specifically, you can only work it one way effectively. You, you can. Nobody on this planet works it both ways worth a damn. And Como would always be like, what about Bubba? And I'm like, honestly, I don't know. I can't explain it because that guy, you know, he does. He works it all over the place. But that he doesn't work his driver. When I went down there to spend some time with him at Bay Hill, Bay Hill number 10 is a dog leg right. And we stood up there. There's a, you know, again, I just met him again. I've known Ted for two years at this point. But that's the first place that I was with Bubba and a dog leg right. And that's as you know, Bubba's like, so what do we do here, math nerd? And I'm like, you know, I'm going to just settle in with you. You don't want to get a feel for you. What do you see on a hole like this? He's like, I started about 70 yards right of those houses and hit a hundred yard cut back into the fairway. And I was like, holy shit, you do? And he's like, yeah. He's like, I was like, honestly, I thought you would swing a driver, you know, just a swinging hook down there. And he's like, it's like, I haven't tried to draw my driver in at least 10 years. And I was like, ah, there you go. Even the guy that I thought worked the ball all over the place didn't do it with driver drivers, which is why lefties, Phil, Bubba, Mike Weir, Bob Charles, even Zach Johnson, who everybody likes to say, well, Zach won was, yeah, but he likes to draw it. It's the only thing he hits. That course does set up well for him. And the year that he won, it was miserable. He won it one over par. Everybody likes to be like, Zach Johnson won without going for a par five and two. Yeah, nobody else did that week either because it was miserable. You know, it's funny, like, because I looked into the lefty-righty thing because I don't have data on ball flight stuff, but I found overall, I mean, this is just using 20 years of data, lefties have benefited only seven or 0.07 strokes per round um, just well after accounting for course fit and, and course history and all that stuff. But I think it, it really, I would love to see how the math on that works. And again, who you did and didn't use, because now I'm talking the Bubba's, the fills, the, the oh, big, right, all of them. I'm just saying I, I added essentially a dummy variable for is the player a lefty into, into my course fit and found, yeah. you know, but again, this is, this is only this century. This is not, I mean, this is not going back to the like eighties or nineties. So I don't have, you, you don't have that many data points of lefties. And, and, the, and the real key to that is you also have to understand like shot patterns. So like number 12, yeah. Shot patterns for right-handed players. I don't care if you're playing a fade or a draw. They tilt from long left to short right because just I don't care if you're playing a draw or a fade. If you if you're if you're playing a fade and you hit it left of your target, it probably went further than you expected it to. And if you hit it right of your target, it probably went shorter. That's just the way it works. And so you get on a hole like twelve. The opposite is true for lefties. It, theirs tilts from short left to long right. So 12 and 13, there's a number of holes out there that a, a left-hander's shot pattern fits the green better than a right-hander's shot pattern. Um, they just, they do that. I mean, again, like, I, I don't doubt your math, but it's just a fact that on 2, 5, 9, 10, 13, 
uh, and 12 and 13 approach shots, it's just such a better shot pattern fit. It's unbelievable. I agree. I, I, I'm not, I'm not doubting that. No, no, I'm, just, I know. I'm just saying like, cause we don't have, there's not that much, there aren't that many lefties. So you don't have a ton of data there. Yeah. Um, but, and the data you do have, they've won. I mean, that's, that's like, well, that's the reason I say I'd like to see more performance like to see, too. Like Bubba's course history at Augusta, you know, yes, he's had some really, I mean, he's won twice, but he's also played very poorly at times. I mean, and, and Phil, I mean, I have to pull this up, but yeah. We should let Scott go. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. This, is, uh, this has been really cool. Um, I'm, I'm going to be enjoying hopefully the next six months improving my game using your app. Um, and it's been, that. you know, I, I do think one thing I would summarize on this is like, I think one of the things that's awesome about what you do is it's practical implementation of logic grounded on analytics, which is like kind of the key to life, right? Like the analytics and whatnot, they're all great, but the actual practical implementation and being able to convince uh, players to use that information, I think is, is sort of the holy grail. So thanks for joining us. Jeff, I appreciate that. I mean, it really is. It really is about just making better decisions. I mean, I just spoke at MIT's analytics conference. Wharton asked me to come speak at their economic decision-making conference in a, in a couple months. And it really is. I do just believe that every decision in life is a math-based decision. I mean, whether you realize it or not, you're weighing odds. And I'm just trying to take the mystical and shine a light on me. Like this is the actual, the, these are the inputs that matter. This is what you should think about. And the rest of that stuff, that's all golf course architecture folklore nonsense that's not actually a part of this decision so it's it's it is fun it's cool to hear guys like both of you who are you know mid handicap players obviously and it, it does it just works for everyone it really does i, I agree 100 percent with what you said there about about yeah. decision making i think it's, a, it's unbelievable again social media is our downfall of society like i get people that push back on that one i posted one time every decision you make in, is a math-based decision people are like no it's not i'm like yeah, it is. Like even crossing the street is a math-based decision. Will I make it 100% or will I not? Like even if you don't realize it, you're if you've got two things, how else are you making a decision besides essentially math? You, and it may not be conscious math, but that's the only way you just make a decision ultimately, I think. Yeah, and all you can do is control your process. That's right. Yeah, that's why we're called Beth the Process. So. Yeah. You have, you have that's, your that's the segue. That's, that's where you tie it up. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Thank you so much. You got it. Thank you. In a simulated system to break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppeteers are put to end just running off a of leaded.